that moment altered the course of not just my life, but our organization. And I told Mason, I said, I'm never going to forget Bella. I never want to forget how I feel right now because I don't like it and I want to do something. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Abundant Journey Podcast. I'm your host, Nick James, along with my co-host, Nick Offenkamp. Nick, how are you, sir? I'm well. You're sounding uh, maybe a little under the weather, or you got a, just a little extra sultriness in your voice this morning. You know, I'd love to think it's sultriness, but definitely under the weather. But here we are. How are things in your world? <laughs> here we are. You know what? I had the, uh, the junk uh, a few weeks ago. <laughs> I might have actually been the one to give it to you. I'm gratefully over it now and feeling a whole lot better. But how are you? I'm doing good, man. You know, you're exactly right. Life with little kids just uh, brings home all kinds of sickness. And uh, I'm the last one to get it. I survived the battle as long as I could. (laughs) But here we are on the tail end of it. Super excited about our episode today. And we spend some time with Joel Anderson at Anderson Construction. And he's somebody that I've had a chance to get to know over the last year. I know his family. Uh, I love their story because they are folks that are radically generous with their time, their resources, and they've really built a company around that. What do you think of the episode? Oh my gosh, man. I uh, I mean, I've, I've loved every person that we've gotten to sit down and, and interview. Um, when you hear of like meeting with the president of a construction company, I just didn't really know what to expect. But <clears throat> Anderson's huge. Yeah, um, they're doing over a billion dollars annually in revenue and yep. projects, and they're really just a, a regional construction company, right? They've got locations mm-hmm. in Portland, Seattle, Boise, yep, and maybe one down in Northern California. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, anyway, I. I um, was unprepared for just uh, how <laughs> successful uh, he's been in business, um, but even more impressive to me was the uh, the sense of like mission, purpose, and calling that he has found in his work. And like you said, the uh, the radical generosity it just oozes out of him. I was inspired. It yeah. was amazing. No, absolutely. And you know, I think. The audience isn't prepared for this episode, and that's why we decided to do a pre-recording on this and and talk a little bit about what they're getting themselves into. But also, you can't really be prepared for him walking in. I mean, he's a big dude, like six five, and he is in shape, and you know, so that took I think us by surprise as well as he towered over us. <laughs> right. He's just uh, in as much as he uh, exudes radical generosity, he also just oozes cool. Yeah. You know, I was just like, dude, you are so much cooler than me. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was, it was like sitting at the popular kid table in high school. That's again, right. You know? That's exactly like, right. I feel so out of place and yet I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, no, a hundred percent. And man, when he, you know, we started recording and I'll let you talk a little bit about it. But when we started recording, he just went and took it. But I, I think a couple big highlights for me, cause I know their family story. Um, I think one of the big things was as you, um, are in your company or even in your own personal life, um, one of the things that I just, 
I don't think I'll ever forget from him sharing was the fact that if you don't make giving and generosity a part of your DNA now, you'll never, you'll always find reasons not to do it later. And so he really challenged us in that. Yeah. Yeah. He, incredibly thoughtful guy. I mean, it was almost like sitting down with a a philosopher, like he's just given so much thought to um, not just the mechanics of how to be successful in business, but how to make the world a better place yeah. through his business enterprise and how that, like like you're saying, it, it starts in being faithful in the small things. And mm-hmm. as you alluded to, I mean, this is a little bit unusual compared to other episodes where typically we do our intro and then it's right into to the guest and the podcast and um, and. Typically, that's you know that's what we would have tried to do even in the interview with Joel. But the conversation we hit record and the conversation just he he was rolling um, on some really good stuff and uh, and then the flow of conversation just kept going and it, it never felt like there was the right point to like stop and do a formal um, podcast interview. And so that, I say that to give you all a heads up that um, as we transition into the actual interview with Joel, if you feel like you're jumping in on a, a conversation. That's kind of because you are, but uh, <laughs> that's how we felt. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, uh, buckle up, settle in. Um, there is just so much profound wisdom that Joel shares in this episode. So I just, I can't wait for you all to hear it. Yeah, enjoy it. This week, um, uh, a month ago or something, I had been asked one of our the the woman Kimberly Gamble who runs our Ideal Program, which is inclusion diversity, equity, advocacy, and leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's how we've kind of framed that space. Um, she came from, uh, had started 30 years ago, our safety department, and has now moved into the e- EHS, environmental health safety space. And um, she's won countless, countless awards and has been instrumental in the development, not only of our own program within our companies, but um, in the industry as a whole. And so she has for years sat on the, uh, it's for, it's called the GOSH conference, hmm. Governor's Occupational Safety Health. So she asked me, would I be willing to be the keynote speaker at the GOSH conference this wow. year, which was on Wednesday. Okay. And I said, okay, sure. Um, that works. I mean, I mean, around and they said, okay, they told her, you know, I go, oh, I don't know, Kim. Sometimes they want, like, pretty quick, and I can't say hi in less than two minutes. So <laughs> she's like, I know. So they're going to carve out a little more time for you. Um, so she sent me the day before or Monday or something, she sent me an email that said, hey, you know, these are kind of the, the areas of focus. It was at the, convention, the Oregon Convention Center, and... You know, this is a big event. These are the areas of focus for throughout the day. There's there's different workshops, and then there's all kinds of exhibits and everything. So I looked at it, and was, um, and I decided to focus my efforts. I think one of the next big spaces in our industries, but in the industry as a whole, and we haven't even we're not even seeing the tip of the iceberg yet. Um, is the mental health issues that are going to be plaguing our country over the course of the next 10 and 20 years. Uh, COVID's impact is not going to be just the lives that were lost, but the magnitude of impact that exists 
on everyone who lived through it, and particularly the young people who were in school and were already dealing with, you know, if you're in elementary, middle, high school and you're going through, and life is already disjointed at that age, (laughs) and then you layer in, you know, extreme social anxieties as a result of Mm -hmm. isolation on a mass scale, like worldwide, we have no idea what we're coming into. What we do know is that the construction industry leads all industries in suicide attempts. Hmm. I didn't know that. Which is a terrible thing to lead in. Mm -hmm. And um, so I decided to focus my talk on, you know, here we are, safety is, is why we're here today. And there's all kinds of great discussion points to talk about how we can keep people physically safe. Mm-hmm. But we need today is the day we shift our focus to keeping them emotionally and mentally safe. I love that. Because what we can't do is put a harness on somebody who's at the mental edge. Mm-hmm. Like if you're at six feet of a leading edge it, right, on a building, you're above six feet, you got to be tied off. Yep. If you're within six feet of an emotional edge... No one can see that. Yeah. You can look and function very well, but you're just a trip away from going off and not be going over the edge and not being tied off to anything. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the reality that's plaguing our industry, which is where we're going to focus. Sure. And <clears throat> so I started with a story. I said, when I was a kid, every day, my dad drove me to school. He said... We, as we drove up Patton Road, they hadn't fixed the intersection yet, and it was in the early 80s, and so we'd be waiting for like a long time because <laughs> there was one way in each direction. If you were turning left, basically you stopped traffic. Game over. And, um, and so he would take that time, and I remember every day he'd adjust his rearview mirror. I'm sitting in the back seat, and he'd say, hey, Joel, tell me the golden rule. And I'd say to him every day. You know, and I'm thinking about He-Man, G.I. Joe's, Legos. <laughs> Anything, All the good stuff. Anything and everything but... <laughs> the classics, yeah. The, but that, yeah. and... But I'd say, you know, looking off to space, whatever. But I can still see in myself in those moments. I can see my dad's eyes in the rearview mirror. And I'd say, do unto others as you have done unto you. And that philosophy of being responsible for other people hmm. as though it was you, you know, who were being treated has been foundational to every decision that I've made in my life. Mm. It was, he repeated it and repeated it and repeated it every single day. And so I lived it because it became part of my DNA, (laughs) right? It was was imprinted early enough in my life that it had an impact. And so I challenged everybody in, in in that conference that... We have a responsibility to our fellow people. Yeah. To make their lives as good as our life. And we can't see what they're going through. So how do we bridge that gap? Yeah. And oftentimes creating successful pathways for, for work, this and that, that, those are great. But they're not fulfilling. Yeah. Right? Anything you do by itself 
is wonderful for a period, but it can't. It's hard to make it a fulfilling effort for an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But service to others can be done forever. Yep, is always in need, and is endlessly fulfilling. Hmm. And if we can push ourselves to be our brother's keeper, yeah, to ask them to build a relationship, to be bold in how we operate as an organization. So I told them, our company, a construction company, as archaic as an industry can be, <laughs> has switched to a four-day work week. Hmm. For the very reason of making not only our business an attractive place for the next generation of workers to come, but we have done, in our industry, you have hourly craft labor. And so we say to them, so let's break this down. You're on a job, you tweak your back, and you tough it out because that's what you do. Sure. But you hurt your back. But you don't want to say anything. Not because we're going to get mad, but because there's this perception that if you do that, you're somehow less than. Sure. Mm -hmm. So you don't say anything. So you keep going. And so you start taking some Advil, right? And then you're taking Advil all day to the point where it's like Advil isn't working. Mm -hmm. And so maybe you drink on your way to work and you drink at lunch and you definitely drink an after work mm -hmm. because you got to try to numb this pain. But you also have to work yeah. because you got to support a family. Sure. And then that by itself isn't enough anymore. Now, all the while, you have access to mental health, mm -hmm. physical health, physical therapy. So, you know, you have all of these things, except we say it comes to you at one cost, your time. You got to take off work to go do that. So we're going to not pay you to go get better. Gotcha. And how many people choose that? Yeah, not many. <laughs> if any. And so here we worked really hard to create this space for workers in our industry to have access to everything. You know that it's like 85 to 87% of all insurance, medical insurance claims, are to the families of the insured? Hmm. I didn't know that. Not surprising, the vast majority of those people that are the workers aren't going to take care of themselves. Yeah. Their families take advantage of the insurance, but the workers themselves don't because it comes at a time. Yep. I have to leave work to do that, and I'm not going to make that choice. It's not convenient. And so you just push, 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 push those things down the line, and eventually somebody finds themselves and says... What is the point of living like this? I am in pain that is so bad. Conventional medication doesn't work. Alcohol to numb it isn't enough, and now I'm completely addicted to it. And now I've turned to illegal narcotics in a way to which has sent me in a different direction than I ever wanted to go. Yeah. Right. There's only one way out. And that's where our industry finds itself. Hmm. And to change that, we have to say... That's not acceptable, Yeah. period. But how do we create that? How do we give somebody their time other than literally giving them their time? Sure. Yeah. And so it's a bold move. Our industry peers said, you can't do it. It won't work. 
People within our organization said, it can't be done. <laughs> because our social constructs tell us it can't be done. Right. Because that's not how we do it. So used to the five, five day a week, eight hour work day. Yeah. Or more. Or, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. And so I challenged everybody there that day to say, if you think trying harder at what you're doing is going to get better results. You are mistaken. Yeah. We need to try different. Yeah. We need to be different. We need to be bold. We need to do big things. And they may fail. And that is okay. Sure. But try something. Because what we're doing isn't enough. It's not working. Our situations are getting worse and worse and worse. And I think what we have had in our society is a general lack of imagination. Hmm. And we try harder instead of different. Hmm. We don't imagine beyond what we can reasonably conceive. Mm -hmm. Right? If I can see here to the door, I don't think what's beyond the door. I just think, how could I get to the door? Sure. That's how we're taught, right? And we strip away imagination at an early age and we start boxing people into these ideas and ideologies and we say, go to college or be this or be that. And then people do and they get to the other side and they've never recognized, like, what did I want to, where, where could I have gone? And no one told me that I could have been this or that or the other thing. And so now we have to try to do that in our case with working adults who have, a, you know, and, and so part of our business is actually teaching our people about how a business runs. Mm -hmm. So often people come to work and they get really good at their job mm -hmm. and they never understand the business. Yeah. How it fits in with the whole, how their, their role plays a significant piece. Or yeah, but even, even if you step back behind that and just say, what, if you ask somebody at our company five, six, seven years ago, what is our business? They'd say, general contractor, we build buildings. Sure. <laughs> yeah. That's what we do. Yeah. You know, and, and you'd go, okay, at the service level, that is accurate. Right? But then that's like saying to a baker, what is your business? Yeah. Right? <laughs> Baked bread, pastries, things of this nature. Sure. And you go back beyond that. You're like, no, you're a service provider. Right? You have, you're developing a product mm -hmm. and you want somebody to buy that product. You need people to be engaged with that. Right? There is, but every business, no matter if it's a nonprofit, a bank, a church, <laughs> you know, uh, a coffee shop, a construction company, they all have the same fundamental principles that are required, right? You need people. Yep. They need purpose. And you got to make a profit of some capacity. Otherwise, yeah. you can't run your business. And so what if you can apply those things to say, we want our, to have amazing people and we want our focus to be a profit with a purpose. I love that. That's the driver. Yep. People then all of a sudden can attach themselves to that. If the objective is to make money, then go work at Wall Street. Yeah. Right? There's plenty of places to do that, right? <laughs> that, 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 I mean, yeah. that, that niche is 
carved. Yep. Right? You can go into it. Yeah. And you can do and make as much as you possibly want. And you will never find fulfillment because it is a bottomless hole yep. that just keeps getting more and more dumped into it. There is, a, to me, one of the best written scenes in all of cinema that describes this is in um, the movie Wall Street 2. Okay. Money Never Sleeps. Hmm. There's the subtitle to it. And Shia LaBeouf is the main character, and he's like this young, you know, investment, you know, banker. And But something is amiss, you know, and he's trying, he's reconciling, like, I want to make money, but at the expense of, and it's right when the financial collapse is taking place at the, at the, during the financial collapse of 08. And Josh Brolin is kind of this, you know, he's the, he's the heavy hitter on Wall Street. Sure. And Josh Brolin wants Shia LaBeouf to do something. And, you know, we're pushing against the outside edges of ethics. And, and so he's at a meeting at his house, and they're in his office and he kind of steals him away from a party that Josh Brolin's hosting at their, you know, Brownstone in somewhere in Manhattan. And as the conversation ends, he says, Shia LaBeouf says to Josh Brolin, he goes, what's your number? As he's walking out the door and Josh Brolin stops and goes, what do you mean? He goes, your number for you to walk away from all of this. Hmm. Josh Brolin kind of, Tilts his head to the side, looks up, and goes, smiles back at him and says, more. <laughs> That's the number. Which really gets back at, you know, what you said a bit earlier, that um, just finding a, a job is not ultimately fulfilling, or just trying to chase money is, uh, there's no fulfillment in that, which is fascinating i mean i think that you're absolutely right and so then tying it to service where the i think the, the way you said it was beautiful as far as that there's a uh, you know there's always a need um there's always more that you can do in service but it's also lastingly fulfilling so it's awesome that you, you've been thinking so many along those lines for your own business um and then there's that adage that everybody's heard ad nauseum of the that work smarter, not harder. But I like how you twist that a little bit and that it's not just smarter, but it's uh, work more imaginatively, um, especially uh, in an industry like yours that, as you <laughs> have said, is generally perceived to be pretty darn archaic. And so, I mean, this is, uh, this is gold right here. I think for our listener, it'd be great to just kind of step back a little bit and just see, okay, um, how did all, all of these ideas get into you? I mean, <laughs> you know, like, it's a weird way of putting the question, right? But it's, uh, you know... It, it was a uh, science project yeah. in a lab. Yeah, yeah. Give me the my Frankenstein origin up. story. Exactly. Like, please, my arms you know? were stitched by one, a leg from here. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I just, you know, I don't know of uh, too many uh, guys that are at, at your level. Uh, Anderson's a huge company and you're uh, El Presidente, right? I mean, um, you've got a ton of leadership here and a ton of people under your leadership. And I don't know of many in your position that are talking the same way, thinking the same way, wired the same way. And so I'm kind of curious to get behind the curtain there and just see, yeah, what was that laboratory like? 
Well, uh, okay. A couple things, I guess, that's probably worth noting. So the company that I own is called Shoestring Valley Holdings, and that is the parent company to Anderson Construction. And um, and then within that, we have other business entities, business verticals, and so they're all related within the construction space. Um, but we really want to begin to think of ourselves more as a uh, participant in the real estate spectrum. Yeah. Right. That construction is a component of that, but there's other verticals that we can participate in. So we're expanding there. We have around uh, a thousand employees that we're directly responsible for and their families, and. Um, and so I've kind of stepped away and stepped away and stepped away again because um, my grandfather, so I'm a third generation contractor and, and a business. And, and that's tough to make it three generations. And what's even tougher Absolutely. is to make it three generations with continued growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, the first generation uh, builds it, the second generation grows it, the third generation spends it. Yep. <laughs> well, you're doing all right so far. <laughs> but uh, in our case, we've made, uh, and I, I will say this, that uh, so my grandfather was Andy Anderson. He started in 1950. Amazing story, amazing guy. Um, uh, had Went by a, a series of different monikers. He was from Danish, were Danish, you know, roots, Yep. And so he was a big guy. I'm I'm six foot seven, you know, two hundred and sixty pounds. And he was uh at his height, I think he was probably six four and maybe, you know, two thirty or forty. So he was by fifties standards and forties and fifties. Oh, yeah. In fact, when he tried to get into the armed services, he was too big, like <laughs> physically back in wow. the time of the war during World War Two. You know, he couldn't fit. Just couldn't fit into standard yeah. issue kind of stuff. Yeah, and, and just and like what, he, exactly. what it all was built for. Exactly. Yeah, it, it wasn't built, built for, for your average guy. It was built for the average man. Yeah. And so he towered over yeah. over um over his peers, <laughs> literally. And um so enter my dad who who came Andy didn't get into construction because he had this burning passion. He needed a job hmm. and he um, tried to make a fortune as a uh, onion farmer in Mexico. <laughs> wow. And that didn't work. And so <laughs> um, we, he ended up coming back and getting a job for a smaller contractor in Portland and kind of convinced them that he knew what he was doing, even though he had no idea what he was doing. And he would like to say, by the time they figured it out, I'd learned enough that I wasn't worth getting rid of. <laughs> and But he, he, he pioneered a a new methodology of construction called tilt-up here in the Northwest. And, and that became kind of his claim to fame and, and his expanse. And um, he was working all the time, you know, the 50s. And so my, my uncle's born, my dad is born. And while they're <clears throat> growing up, neither one of them are interested in the construction company. Uh, my grandfather was, um, he, he could be a generous man, but he was also, you know, from that great generation. He could be, challenging sure you know and he was a founder and he was driven mm-hmm. and, and my dad saw the beatles on the ed sullivan show and was <laughs> like that's what i want to be <laughs> i there's a rumor going around that he was a surfer at one point too you know i he was a skier okay for sure <laughs> and a ski bum at that okay. and he was living in a vw van up in the mountains with a giant uh 
Siberian husky named Sheba. Wow. <laughs> and for living for, that best seventy life. Yeah, literally. And, yeah. and for anybody who knows him, polar opposite to what he is now. Yes. Yeah. In <laughs> fact, so um, what happened was uh, he got he joined a rock and roll band, several of them, but ended up in a band called Airborne. And um, was going to be a rock and roller, living the 70s life, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Oh, man. And then, um, but he, there was a, a longing in his heart for something more. There's got to be a higher power. And so him and one of his bandmates had narrowed down it to, it's either Christianity or Hare Krishna. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's pretty wild. And so uh, so they'd kind of done a, a little study of all of the religions of the time and had narrowed it down to those two. Wow. And uh, his bandmate, um, his name is Greg Hooper, um, was in the room next door to my dad down the hall in their little uh, band house. And Greg was, was thinking about ending his life. Hmm. Just, you know, just kind of, he was young. He was broken. He recognizing, I think, that his dreams of, of being Led Zeppelin were not going to be realized. Sure. And um, they're both, you know, all of the band members are probably high on acid or LSD or something. So they're having weird thoughts anyway. And unbeknownst to Greg, my dad is in his room kind of having, not thinking about ending his life, but just going, hey, if there's a God out there, do something. Well, Greg... Next door, he had, all of a sudden, you know, he as he's thinking about ending it all, this thought comes rushing back to him. Years before, he'd been in Spokane, Washington, and he's crossing the street, and there's a guy with a sandwich board yep. that says, Jesus saves, you know, John 3.16, handing yeah. out flyers, you know? Yeah. So Greg sees this guy as he's walking up the block and doesn't want any part of it, so he ditches across the street. The guy sees him crossing the street to avoid him. And yells, hey, buddy, just remember, Jesus saves. Wow. Greg keeps going, doesn't, never looks back. Yeah, sure. But in that moment, at his lowest point, that hmm. comes back. It's incredible. And he goes, Jesus, if you're real, do something for me. Hmm. And he did. And he busts into my dad's room. And now these guys know nothing about anything they've ever been to church. <laughs> They're literally <laughs> high, right? Yeah. And he goes, Dave! Jesus is the answer. <laughs> hey, that's some good sandwich board theology. You know? that's, that's all the doctrine you need right there. <laughs> so my dad decides, uh, and and Greg, that you know their time in the band after that after their conversion is kind of like it's time to do something else. So he gets into construction, and but it's reluctant. He doesn't want to work for his dad, but he ends up working uh, at Anderson, and. Uh, took a different path in that he started actually on the as a as the assistant controller for the company okay. on the finance side and then worked his way up to CFO and so he 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 saw the building through the books um, he did do some field building but he, sure. he spent most of his time in house and yeah. he's very smart David my dad incredibly yeah. smart incredibly generous kind yeah kind and um, just as a, and he's a diligent just like he just keeps moving forward like he just he's got what i would call a low gear that that doesn't stop driving huh. yeah. right so it's he's not he's he's never going fast 
but he never stops going. Yeah. Right. So he can he can drive through any terrain, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> through any weather, right? And it just oh, keeps man. just keeps going and going. And so he did a terrific job of building our organization and centering it around you know different um, you know uh, construction focuses, you know, housing, high tech, healthcare, these you know, higher education, education, these kind of things. But then on top of that, he fortified our organization with the development of our vision and our values to be the builder of choice as a vision and to have our nine core values. And so, you know, I grew up in the eighties and I, I watched my dad's ascension, yeah. you know, to the president of the company. And I was there, you know, in high school when he's developing the core values and they roll out. I'm working here at the company then. And so, and again, framed by a couple of things. One, as I mentioned earlier, my dad's kind of early implant of the golden rule. Yeah. Yep. And, and then my parents lived a life of service to others quietly. Hmm. My mom, I asked my mom once, I go, how come, like, how come we don't have a name on a building? Because somebody had asked me. Yeah. And she was like, looked at me like, no. Like, <laughs> we've missed the mark altogether if you're even asking that question. Oh, man. And she said, we will give with the left hand so the right hand doesn't know it. Hmm. Like, this is not for us. And they lived that way. And, and lived, still do. And still do. Yeah. And live that way. But I mean, as a child, that's what I watched growing up is my mom, when she became a Christian, had was looking for some way to to fit into, you know, of service, what can she do? And so she had said, she prayed for the burden for the souls of men. Hmm. Hmm. And I remember we lived on the west side of Portland and our church is over in southeast Portland. So every, every, every time we went to church, which was three times a week, we'd drive down Burnside and across through downtown and across the Burnside Bridge to the east of Burnside. And that exchange back in the 80s and early 90s the west side of the Burnside Bridge held the Union Gospel Mission and the Portland Rescue Mission, yep. and the east side had two more missions on it. And so the Burnside Bridge was was home to a lot of, um, you know, uh, a lot of disappointment. People whose lives didn't turn out the way that they wanted to. And, mm -hmm. yeah. and I remember as we would pass that stretch, my mom, her her eyes would well up, and I can see her reflection in the window. You know, sitting in the back seat, looking forward out the window, and see her eyes and just the weight of each and every one of those lives that she passed. You know, and she just and she bore that weight for them in those moments. And and I watched that and I thought, man, that is that is a thing. So as a child, I grew up with these incredible parents that made um, giving a part of our everyday existence. But not like, okay, now we're going to go work at a soup kitchen, kids. Like, sure. that, that was not what we did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Like, their gen generosity existed to just kind of an everyday functionality. Mm -hmm. it, it existed in everything they did. And so it wasn't an event of giving. Life was giving. And, and that's so, true radical generosity right there. I mean, it's just, it's, it's embedded in the DNA of who you were as a family and who you've been as a business. And, you know, it, I love that because we talk a lot at Abundant Journey about radical generosity. And I think you're right. So many people love that. Hey, look at me. I'm a good 
I'm a generous giver. This is the type of environment that I give. You know, people want to see that, but the silent, consistent lifestyle of giving. It's, it, it's not an action, it's a who. Yeah. Yeah, the identity piece there. Uh, as far as just there's generous acts but uh, that doesn't necessarily make one a generous person um, there's a, a way of being existing in the world that uh, truly makes you know, marks you by generosity that's awesome that you witnessed that in your it folks. was it was foundational to um, to who I've become yeah. and so what I will say is my parents contended with um, my dad in particular but both of my parents my grandfather was, um, he was a little more, not a little more, he was more of the ilk of, um, I'm happy to give it to you, but don't forget it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you may have felt a string or two attached to, uh, yeah. to some of the... But, um, yeah. He was very generous. And so yeah. we came, because he came from nothing, right? And so he, sure. he very much wanted to help. Um, but he didn't have a father, you know? He didn't have a great example and... Um, I remember one of the best things my dad ever said to me. He goes, I was uh, 14. We got into this huge fight. I'm standing on the stairs and I'm stomping off, you know, because I'm grounded. Um, it was a big fight. And I told him, I said, you are a hypocrite. And the fact, like, I will never do to my kids what you did to me right now. <laughs> and, you know, my dad, David, is like like the most even killed guy and <laughs> You'll like meet. so meek and you know and he just stood there and he took that from his 14 year old son and he goes you know all I could ever be was better than my dad and I know you will be better than me yeah but you're still grounded <laughs> remember that that exchange of all of the you know of all you think of all of the times you got in trouble as a kid but, sure. but that exchange never left me because i just thought wow yeah. okay and um so you know all these years later with teenagers of my own you yeah. know i think about that and I'm just waiting for one of them to say that. That's to me. right. Yeah. You know, I'm like, I hope I have yeah, the presence yeah, of mind yeah, to give exactly. to give them that line. Yeah. But um, so um, so my dad he he had to work really hard because Andy was around my grandfather, and as a founder, they got different takes on things. Right? Sure. Founders are like, hey, that's that's my money you're giving away. Right, mm -hmm. even though he didn't want anything, and he didn't even take a salary. Right, it wasn't about that. It was, yeah. it was just this idea, and it was. It's that challenge of letting go of what you've made. Yeah. Right, and so that's a struggle. What I also witnessed with my dad was he worked so hard, and against he was. It was like he was um, swimming. He's right-handed, but it was like he was swimming upstream with his left hand and with his right hand he was fighting off like a crocodile <laughs> right like andy like he's he david was trying to advance an organization against the headwinds of life right yeah, just yeah. that exist but instead of being able to have somebody who's pushing from behind he's only swimming with one arm and he's like fighting off 
his dad, <laughs> at, you know, often. Yeah. And David or Andy wasn't as supportive as David as David has been of me, and they're not even in comparison. And um, and so as a result of that, my dad got to a place where, when Andy, you know, really started to fade away, and then ultimately passed away, but just like fade away from just operating the business, sure. um, you know. I think my dad was tired of that and was now focused on kind of refining and, 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 and I like to describe it like this, you know, Andy established the army yeah. <laughs> of Anderson. David got everybody marching in syncopation. Hmm. My job was to move the troops. Hmm. That's good. So we all had a part to play, but with None of us could have done it without the foundation block of the piece before. Yeah. Right. And so while we've experienced the, you know, the biggest growth in the last, you know, since I've taken over, as we've gone from a company that did, you know, 300 million or 200. When I moved back from Seattle in 2012, we did 199 million in sales. And this year... We'll do 1.2 billion. Mm. So <laughs> in awesome. you know in 11 years, yeah. we've, we've experienced pretty sizable growth. Yeah, that's incredible. People like to then attribute that and say, "Wow, you must be really good." Well, you know, well, no. What I had was an incredible foundation to start from. Sure. Had everybody that was marching in syncopation, right? Yep. They just. David just was like, okay, I did my job. I got everybody marching in harmony, culturally speaking. Somebody's got to go, now move the troops. And that takes an entirely different energy set to do. Yep. Different and, skills. Yep, all of that. And I was like, but, but I like that. Yeah. Where should we go? Where should we move and, and explore and, and try? And um, I mean, early on, my dad said, he goes, you know, you're a great starter, but you're not a really good finisher of hmm. things. True. Incredibly true. I think that's kind of um, a lot of times entrepreneurs fit sure. that bill. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have I have an endless stream of ideas. <laughs> yep. And I, what I'm interested in is seeing you, somebody else, take that idea and do something with it. Mm-hmm. I'll get it going. I'll get it started. I'll get you challenged and fired up about it. Yeah. And when you're like, yes, I'm like, great, because it's yours now. <laughs> now go. <laughs> I am now out. Well, that's a good, a, a good entrepreneur can build systems, right? So they, they, they have the vision, then the system's built, then they hand it off. Yeah, I'm not really even a systems builder. I'm just purely what's next. Okay. Right? Yeah. And so I recognized that early in my career, though couple things, you know, you'd asked me, these are a long answer, a long road to the question of like the Frankenstein parts that, how did you get here? It's a good road. It's the, the scenic <laughs> route. I'm all about that. So. But the, some of the foundational pieces were, again, you know, understanding that giving yep. is critical. Yep. Always from the standpoint of how do I want to be treated mm-hmm. and then mirroring that onto the people that I'm working with, right? I want to feel like I matter. I want them to feel like they matter. Yeah. And who doesn't want to feel like they matter? Yeah. When I started doing business development, 
in Seattle when I went to open the office. I was 26, 27 years old opening an office at the beginning of the Great Recession in 2008. Great time. I mean, it was... Construction of all things. Of all things. (laughs) And our focuses were high-tech and housing, which both got obliterated in 08. Yep. So, you know, it was the most incredible time Hmm. to do something, though. It was... was, I, I live in a state of envy... Of my of those days gone by, because they can never be recaptured. That sense of unknown, like boarding the vessel, destination unknown. Yeah, you know the tur- the turmoil and trials of the journey. You know, is constant, and yet it was the most exhilarating thing I've ever done in my career in life. And when I was young. Had no idea what I was doing, and somehow convinced a group of people that we should do this together, and um, and so you know we have you know so so we embark on this journey up in Seattle, and um, and I'm learning a lot, and so I started I needed to meet people because we didn't have any base light in Seattle, so mm. the good thing in 2008 was everybody was free, yeah. <laughs> and if you, I was willing, time to talk. and if I was willing to buy them lunch, boy, I could get, I could meet anybody, right, <laughs> and so, um, and so I had, you know, so I started this refining effort, and I mean, I was working, so if you think there's three meals, three standard meals a day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, seven days a week, that's 21 meals in a week, right, yeah, I was eating 15 or 16 meals a week with clients wow i was doing two breakfasts or two lunch double dinners right i mean because i was trying to like i need to know every i need in my mind it's go Mm -hmm. so we don't have time i don't have 15 years is what it took Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know i'm thinking i gotta do it now Yeah. yeah and so i need to i need to know everybody today and i was spending my entire days going from lunch meeting, breakfast meeting, to second breakfast meeting, to lunch meeting, to afternoon coffee, to dinner, you know, happy hour to dinner, and going home and eating dinner with the family. <laughs> yeah. Needless to say, I had put on a few pounds yeah, back in the day. Yeah, I was going to say, probably yeah. learned to like salad after yeah, a while. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, when I'm, when I started doing that, I was like, you know, everybody's out here looking, trying to connect and then they know what I do and I know what they do. And I was like, I need something that's worth more. And so I started thinking about it in terms of like, what do I want? Mm-hmm. Well, I want to tell a story. I love the human tale, right? And so I started asking people this question. And I sat down and I said, tell me where you're from. And then invariably, when you ask somebody that, they might say, the city that they're from, but invariably they will start from the college that they graduated from. Hmm. I went to school at here. And so they pick up their life at that point. And I go, oh, and so they tell me that. And then I go, actually, would you mind starting with your grandparents? <laughs> My grandparents? Yeah. Tell me about your grandparents. Now it does a couple of things. One, if you and I are meeting for the first time and I say, tell me where you're from. And they tell you, and they went, you know, let's say they're from, you know, uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. And they went to Central Florida. And I go, okay, I'm from Portland, Oregon, and I went to Oregon State. Like, just off the surface, we're a long ways away from each right. other. Yep. 
right? In terms of finding a direct connect. Now, if they tell me about their grandparents, everybody has four sets of grandparents. Now, whether or not they were, or four total grandparents, right? Yeah. Now, whether or not those grandparents were a meaningful part of their life sure. is a different story, but everybody has at least right. four. Then they have at least two parents, right? Again, same thing. But what you get now is I go from a one-to-one -one effort to try to connect to seven people to seven people, right? Yeah. I have exponentially increased my odds Way of finding a... for overlap. For and, connection, yeah. right? I love that. And all of a sudden, what happened was people were like, you want to hear about my family? And I can't tell you how many times I met somebody for the first time at lunch. And by the time they were done, they were in tears. Hmm. Yeah. Because there was heartache, there was joy, they felt seen, heard, any and all of those things. I don't know. But when they walked away, they were like, this wasn't about the potential of this person building a building for me someday. This was somebody who was interested in getting to know me. As a person. As a person. Yep. They yeah. saw me as a person. And, and I loved that because I love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? I wanted to see people for who they are and where they are. Yeah. And so, so that was instrumental. And then one of the best pieces of advice that I got was um, the guy that I worked for at Anderson was a, our chief operations officer, Martin Klo. And um, he, we had, uh, it's like the tale of two cities. We had the best of times together and the worst of times. We, are, we couldn't be any more extreme in terms of personality. We've done the personality tests. Yeah. We literally are off the Just charts, polar opposites, okay? <laughs> and so, um, and yet we worked so well together. But in the early days of Seattle, you know, I, I, I mean, I was talking to him three, four times a day. Sure. You know, and he's running the entire organization, but I needed him. I needed a mentor. I needed support. I needed help. And, and he was always good about answering the call, talking to me. I need to call you back. Let's do this. But I remember we won our first job in Seattle, and it was such a thrill, and I worked so hard. And so in my mind, again, I'm 27 years old. I just turned. I'm thinking, this is, here we go. Yeah. We are off to the races. And all of a sudden, the, he assigns a team from Portland. They come up, and they... Start working on the project, and I become clear. I go to they have a meeting, and I'm not invited to the meeting. And I was like, "What?" what? <laughs> so I call him, and I unload. I'm like, "What is going on here? I just got aced out of the deal. This is my job." He's like, he listens to me, and he goes, "This is not your job." I go, "What do you mean?" And he goes, "Your job was to get the job. Your job is not to do the job. Go get the next job. That's your job." And I was just like, are you kidding me? I worked so hard, you know. I'm like, and he says, he says, listen, I want to tell you something. So he's he's the same age as my dad, David. So he was probably so let's say I'm 27. So he would have been you know like 52, three something like that. Mm -hmm. He goes, well, no, I guess he would have been like 50. He goes, um, I'm gonna tell you something, and the sooner you can learn this. <laughs> the happier you'll be in your career. I go, I'm like, okay, great, dad, thanks. You know? <laughs> and, and he says, if you can find happiness in the success of your people, huh. 
you will be happier. Hmm. And I remember thinking, that's the dumbest thing I've heard. I want success, <laughs> happiness. Sure. I want to win. Yeah. <laughs> Why do I care about other people winning? <laughs> yeah. You know, 27 years yeah. old, you know. Yeah. Okay, that weekend, so that was like on a Tuesday, Wednesday, something like that. And it just, I'm bothered the rest of the week. But that weekend, I'm at home. My daughter Chauncey did her first something. I don't even remember what it was anymore, right? She had, she was, it, was walk, it wasn't walking, but it was something. She did her first something. something. Sure. Yeah. It was a big deal. Oh, man. And I mean, I'm calling everybody, and I'm telling everybody what Chauncey did. <laughs> Chauncey did this. Chauncey, she is the greatest thing ever. And, and I felt like the Lord kind of went, does that sound familiar at all? Huh. You see how happy you are when your child succeeds? You didn't do anything for your child's successes there. Yeah. You didn't teach her to walk, yeah. right? You didn't teach her, you know. When she wanted to talk, she was going to talk, yeah. right? But you can be happier in her successes than you will ever be in anything you accomplish. That's hmm. great. And I remember I came back on Monday with an entirely different look that shaped the rest of my entire career in life. Wow. That happiness was never going to be by my accomplishments. It was going to exist because I made other people better. Hmm. And let them shine. And I will tell you, it's been all rainbows and butterflies and prancing unicorns since then. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So hey, it's been great, guys. <laughs> no. Um, the uh, after, after, I mean, again, I was 27 years old, so yeah. I didn't change the fact that, you know, most people at that point in their career, 27, you want the pat on your back. They're ramping up for that. Right? The 20s are, are your growth and the 30s, I mean, this is growth. You know, you start hitting 40s and then 50, 60 is when you start turning around and going, you know what, I want to give back. And all of a sudden, my timeline got fast forwarded. Yeah. It's uh, right? almost on skipping 20 years. Like major. Yeah. And, and that was hard because I knew what was the right thing to do for leadership, even though it was contrary to my own human being at the time. Yeah. And, and so it was a struggle. And I struggled a lot with it. Yeah. And I remember one time, you know, we were living in Seattle. I came down on the Saturday before Mother's Day to spend the day with my mom. Because I was going to be with Misty and the girls and the kids up, up in, uh, in Seattle on Sunday. So I drove down early. I picked up my mom. We spent the whole day together. And I wanted to do that. I also had an interior motive. I needed to talk to my mom, too. I was, I was feeling heavy about a series of things, one of which was, you know, I didn't feel seen, appreciated by mm. the people that I worked for. My dad, Martin, our, B, our CFO, Bill Eckhart, you know, these different people. So at the end of the day, I'm having this conversation with my mom, and we're in the driveway of her house. I'm saying goodbye to her. We're in the driveway. And she listens, like moms do. Oh, yeah. And then she says to <clears throat> me, almost annoyed, she goes, do you ever think anybody tells those guys how much they appreciate them. Mm. I was like, <laughs> thanks, Mom. You know, here I was looking for you to be on my team. You yeah. know? Out of and, all people, Mom should be there. Exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. And, then, and, and so now I've got three-plus hours drive home. So drive home, her words have just pierced me. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, 
here you go again, Joel, thinking about you, mm-hmm. right? By the time I got home, I wrote every one of them an email telling them how much they mean to me and how much I appreciate them. Mm-hmm. And I sent them all those emails individually. The response back was incredible. I bet. I bet. Yeah. People want to matter. Mm-hmm. And they want to know that they matter. Yeah. Right? We spend our life trying to build relationships and trying to find things, but we don't spend enough time just understanding, caring, acknowledging who other people are, what they mean to us. And those, those subtle efforts, they're more than anything else. We could, they're, they're greater than any grand gesture that's ever been accomplished, right? Just, just, making, just making people feel consistently like they matter. And so you have all of these things that have happened in my life, these conflicts of things. And, and so it leads me to back to Portland. And by 2012, we'd had um, pretty great success uh, in Seattle. In 2010, we'd been winning work. So the recession's in full s- swing. Yep. Uh, but we've been winning work, and we're growing. And mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you another little trade secret <laughs> is... Um, I got in the habit, I have a high energy, high enthusiasm just in life, right? <laughs> I, I like to go, everything's exciting, right? And um, so when I was starting in Seattle, everything was a win, even when it wasn't a win. Yeah. If we didn't win a job, but we got shortlisted to be in the job, we got to interview, win. Yeah, right. When you're starting at zero... Everything's progress. Everything's progress. Yeah. And so what I started doing was I'd send these weekly recaps of the week's wins. We hired this person. Uh, We picked up this little job. We we got made the shortlist for this one. Every week I would send these updates out. With just incredible enthusiasm because I was I felt that way. It was real. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, how the 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 moment I realized it worked was we were building this. 500,000 square foot medical office building and parking garage in, in Bellevue and it's a huge project and for particularly for our, our, our little yeah. office and we had the superintendent that we had hired locally who had come from one of the biggest local builders in town and he had built 40 story high rises I mean hundreds multi hundred million dollar projects and I had sent out an email the Friday before and we had won four Special projects, we call special projects, projects that are kind of sub $1 million, you know. The total value of those projects, for four of them, was less than a $1 million, which in, in our business, at, as you mentioned, $1.2 billion, like, yeah. That's, yeah. that is, you need a lot of those, yeah. right, to get there, right? So, these are not, okay, big yeah. projects, but they were big wins for us. Mm-hmm. So, I sent them out. Don't think any of it. Show up to the job site to meet a client to walk the job the next week. As I'm walking up to the job trailers, the superintendent's walking out. Now, this guy's he's probably in his upper 50s. He's been in the industry. He is all over. He comes out, and he sees me. He's got a bounce in his step. He's got a smile on his face. He walks over to me, puts his big hand out, shakes my hand. He goes, hey. He goes, great job. And I go, 
<laughs> what? <laughs> and he goes, we're winning. And I go, yeah. okay. What? <laughs> and he goes, your email. And I was like, I'm thinking. And I was like, oh, yeah. Just to kind of like yeah, take right. the look off my face. And he's like, keep it up. And he, off he goes to the project, you know. And I'm standing there, just left, like, <laughs> stunned, like, looking around, like, what just happened? And I realized, this guy, in all of the successes, in all of the mega projects and the giant companies that he'd worked for, he never felt a part of the winning. Yeah. And we made him feel like we were winning. And all of a sudden, what it did was it started to reinforce a winner's mentality. Yeah. Right? We can win. We belong yeah, belief. We belong. The power of believing that we can do it. Mm-hmm. And that was instrumental to our growth because now all of a sudden we didn't go in with an arrogance. We, we, but we went in with a confidence that we belonged there. Yep. Whether or not we won, we belonged in the room with the conversation. Yep. Right? And once we shifted and we got our people to believe that we belong... It changed our ability to grow. Because now people thought, no, oh, that's too big for us. That's, that's too much for us. That's too this or that's too that. All of a sudden you go, no, I think we belong there. And we won a job, which was very exciting. It was winter. And I'm driving, feeling very excited. And I turn, up the, the, turn off the Michigan Avenue exit uh, I-5 to head to our office in Georgetown and I drive past St. Vincent de Paul and they have a food pantry line. Hmm. It's pouring down rain. It's cold. 2010. The recession's in, you know, full, full swing. swing. Yep. People are losing their homes. It's, it's bad. And here I am excited. We just won a project. I'm feeling... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Top of the world. And I drive by this and I drive by it every day but on that day the dichotomy between what I was experiencing and what I was witnessing yeah. were so far apart that it, it crushed my spirit. And I pulled a U-turn on Michigan, on 4th Avenue, and I pull back in, and I, I go up to St. Vincent de Paul, I walk in, and I said, my name's Joel Anderson, I got a construction company, I'd like to do some work for you. And the guy at the front desk goes, I don't think we're hiring any workers right now. I was like, No. I'm sorry. No, I'm not here to hire to do work. I want to do something for you. And he looks at me like, hey, you know, I'm the front desk person, man. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> he goes, you need to talk to Alan Dombrowski. Oh, oh, he said, great. Can I talk to him? Well, he's not here. Oh, okay. Well, here's my card. Please have Alan call me when he gets in. He said, okay. So I go to my office, which is like, you know, 47 seconds away. Sure. Right? It's really close. Later that day, I get a call from a number I don't recognize. Hello, Anderson's Joel. Hey, Joel, this is Alan Dombrowski. Alan, are you at your place? He goes, yes. I go, I'll be there in one minute. (laughs) Run outside, jump in my car, drive back, pull up. He goes, hi, how can I help you? I go, I want to do work for you. He goes, we're not hiring. I go, no, I understand. I don't want you to pay me to do work. I want to do something for you. He's like, I, I don't understand. Wow. And I go, well, what do you need done? He goes, I don't know. What do you mean? I go, I don't know. So we start walking around and talking. He's a great guy. And it turns out he's like, they needed some storage. 
So we're talking, and I go, how about a shipping container? He goes, it would be amazing. I go, how about two? He goes, I think one would be good. (laughs) I go, okay, do you want it today? He's like, no. (laughs) we got to move some stuff around. (laughs) I'm like, tomorrow? He's like, okay, can I call you? (laughs) And he's like, okay. So in that moment in Seattle, this new idea was birthed, which was a community give back program. For every job we were awarded for profit, we were going to do a job pro bono for a non-profit. Oh, that's so cool. And they were going to be small, like that. Sure. Shipping container, little this, that, whatever. Now, where that comes from was when I was in uh, about 15 years old, there's a Sunday school class, and there, there's this book by a man named Letourneau called A Mover of Men and Mountains. I think I've heard of that. Yeah. And uh, he was kind of a, an inventor, not kind of, he was an inventor from the 1800s working in the early days of machinery and devented, invented a lot of what is now like Caterpillar, you know, equipment, heavy operating equipment. Had businesses come and go, rise and fall, but he was a Christian. And so they're telling us the story about him. And I didn't get all the details when I was in, I wasn't listening, but the part that I paid attention to was as he started earning money, he started making, he started paying 10% in ties. Mm-hmm. And started performing better, he started paying 20%, 30 up to 90%. That's awesome. Lost his business. Yeah. Gets to the bottom, he's, he can't make, you know, he can't make payroll, he can't put food on his table. But he starts to think, you know what? I got to go back to where I started. And he starts back at 10%. And all of a sudden, life starts to turn again. And then he goes to 20%, 30 and back mm. up to 90%. And this is, you know, and so he's got this, this life cycle of this. And I remember hearing that story just enough as a, as a teenager to say, if I ever control the purse strings of a company someday, I want to pay ties out of the company. I want to do, I want to be responsible with that, yeah. with purpose. Yep. And, and so here was my chance to do that. I was running an office and I was like, I can do that. Yeah, and so um, so we started a community give back program, and the amount of work that started pouring in became mm. overwhelming, and so I had to hire somebody part time to try to find projects. So we we're keeping like like a tablet with on this column it says new jobs for profit check yeah. <laughs> on this one you know like <laughs> so we're trying to like we're out of balance yeah, yeah, here yeah. we got to get some more over on this side <laughs> yeah. And, and so um, in 2012, uh, they asked me to move back to Portland and start the transition to take over the company as president. Over the next couple, you know, to move back, transition, and over the next couple of years, then I take over. And I said, I don't know. I mean, I'm very happy here. I, my wife and I and our kids, we, we love it here in Seattle. We're very happy at this place, this office, all of these kind of things. And... Um, but they said, no, it's, it's what's in the best interest of the company. And I said, okay, there's a couple things that are important to me and outline them. And one of them was the community give back program has to become a company-wide initiative now. Hmm. And they said, we support that 100%. Nice. We're, we're great. And I yeah. said, okay, awesome. So we came back. Well, now, trying to manage that, it was difficult when it was in Seattle. Now it was in four different places, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and so in, um, in 2000 and... Uh, uh, 15 I in 2014 excuse me 2015 I decided it was time for us to start 
the Anderson Construction Foundation, a 501c3. And we're going to hire somebody whose job it is is to manage this effort. And so we hired a woman named Maddie Stolowitz, who's like made up of like 98% heart with a little bit of bone and skin that kind of keeps it all together. <laughs> Sounds like the right person. Exactly. So that year, I, um, so I've got, you know, uh, some other business interests. And one of my business partners is a guy who plays in the NBA named Mason Plumley. And Mason and I um, had had been traveling and doing some different things. And I had been invited by Corbin University, which is a small Christian college outside of Salem in Portland, or outside of Salem in Oregon. <clears throat> and they had invited me. They said, we have a satellite campus in Jakarta, Indonesia. Wow. We'd like you to come. We go on and we bring, we invite a handful of people. We'd like you and your wife to come. And I was like, absolutely. That sounds incredible. You know, I love visiting new places in the world. Um, so Misty and I are all set to go. And uh, about two weeks before we leave, she goes, I don't want to go to Indonesia. Like, I have no interest in leaving for 10 days to go to Indonesia or whatever. So I'm not going to go. And I was like, <laughs> okay. Uh, so I'm thinking, okay, I got to call somebody. Who can go, like, in two weeks? So I call Mason. They just got bounced out of the playoffs. Yeah. <laughs> Great timing. Yep. And I was like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, driving. I go, no, what do you want to do? What are you doing in two weeks? He goes, nothing. I'm thinking about going somewhere. I go, you want to go to Indonesia? He's like, 100%. Yeah. And so we go to, we travel there. We meet the Corbin team. We spend 10 days in Jakarta, have a pretty wild experience while we're there just in terms of it was, it was really eye-opening, hmm. you know, the disparity between the haves and the have-nots is yeah. stark. Um, and then we were scheduled to have the last uh, couple days, because he just took the trip that Misty and I were taking, right? <laughs> yeah. So at the end of our trip, I had bolted on, we're going to Bali for a few days, right? Yeah. So now him and I go to Bali. <laughs> <laughs> it's very romantic. Yeah, no doubt. And, <laughs> and the sunset dinner for two. Was just just whatever, whatever bromance is made of, you know? <laughs> and, Come uh, true. <laughs> So, um, now, had Misty and I gone to, uh, to, to on this trip, what happened next wouldn't have happened. But because Mason is, he's younger than me, you know, he's like seven years younger than me. Or no, he's like, no, he's like 10 years younger than me, excuse me. And so, his, like, you know, we're just at different places in life in terms of like, and I don't have any social media. Mm. And he has all of the social media. Sure. And so when he arrives in Indonesia, you know, he's post. And so all of a sudden he just gets lit up, you know, like, oh, you got to try this. You got to do this thing. Will you marry me? <laughs> you know, you name it. And so we're in Bali and somebody says, you got to go hike a volcano and see the sunrise. Hmm. Okay. And I was like, oh, okay. I mean, I'm down. Sure. Misty and I would have just been happy to be there. Yeah. At, you know, but... He wanted to do things, and I'm down to do things, but I probably wouldn't, we wouldn't, Misty would have been happy to just lounge around and relax, and yeah. we would have been happy to do Enjoy that. Enjoy your vacation. So now, we get picked up at midnight, that night, so we we go talk to the concierge of the hotel, they say, oh yeah, we can arrange it, so that was on a, it was on a, well, I can tell you, it was on a Friday 
Friday that we got there. So Friday afternoon, they say, okay, we'll pick you up tonight. You go in the morning, or start at midnight. So at midnight, they, uh, this guy picks us up and drives for like two and a half, three hours into the darkest black Balinesian night. Wow. Don't know where we are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're laying. He's got a like a small SUV. Mason, you know, I'm 6'7", and Mason is 7 feet. We're <laughs> sitting in the back, the third row, with the middle row <laughs> collapsed down so that we can get our legs out, you know, in the car. And his legs are touching the driver's yeah, back right. seat, you know. And so we're just, you know, bumping on, trying to sleep, can't, you know. We pull up, and the driver's a very nice man. He stayed with us for the rest of our time we were there. And he lets us out and points us to where we go, and we go over and we get this guide. His name is Katuk, and he comes over. He's a very small Indonesian man, and he looks kind of like what the guys that are going to um, the Sherpas, you know. Yeah. Okay, he kind of looks like that. And uh, he's got kind of this headscarf tied off away and like a Patagonia jacket. And Mason and I are in like a light sweatshirt and shorts, and he got these um, like outdoor like walking sandals, that he's like, I've been dying to try them. I've never had a use for them. So he's got those on, and I got a pair of like running shoes. No, sound really prepared. Yeah, no, we're really prepared. And between us, we got one bottle of water. We had no idea what we were doing. And so what could go wrong? We start, we start walking. We start walking, and we walk up, and we get. And so, mind you, this is now like two thirty or three in the morning that we start. Okay. Yeah. So we start this this trek. Ascend. Yep. And we get to the edge of the tree line before. The volcano, you know, starts to peak up, and um, and we're sitting down, and so it's probably like we've been hiking for maybe like mm, an hour or so. So I'm going to say it's like four, four thirty, something like that. So we've driven two and a half, three hours to nowhere. There's no lights. We've now hiked an hour up. We're a long ways away from anywhere, as far as I can recognize. Yes. Yep. We're sitting there. And everybody, there's other tours that are going up. But where we're sitting, there's all of a sudden, I see, like, in the distance, I'm like, what is that? Is that a kid? And here comes one, here comes another, here comes another, here another. And behind the tree line, all of these kids, like little 10, 11, 12-year-old kids, start, like, they're dressed to go to school. And everyone's looking around, like, what? Like, like checking their eyes like am I seeing what am I seeing right now what am I looking at because it was so it felt so out of place and sure enough this small army of children makes its way out and it was like the children of the corn like they're just yeah just coming and you're and you're like what is happening what is happening right now and so our guide Katuk he he walks over with this young girl and Mason and I are looking at each other and him like what is happening and he goes this is Bella and Bella has drinks in her backpack. And she's going to hike the rest of the way with us. And maybe if you're thirsty, you can buy her drinks. And we were like, oh, got it. Yes, we are so thirsty right now. We'll take all of your drinks. So I asked, how old's Bella? She's 11 years old. She doesn't answer. Okay. So my daughter, Charlotte, at the time was the same age. So... We start hiking, and so Katuk goes first, Mason and I, and Bella. Now, like I said, Mason's seven feet tall and just came out of the NBA 
Western Conference Finals loss than the Golden State Warriors. So, in pretty good shape. And I'm in, I'm in pretty good shape. Yeah. And we are dying yeah. hiking this thing. Like, not... And Katuk is going up and waiting for us. And Bella, with a backpack full of drinks as an 11-year-old, is standing there waiting for us, <laughs> you know, to move because we're dying. So we make it to the top of this thing. And we're sitting there. And... Um, you know, you kind of catch your breath, and it's and it's and it is as dark as it's been. It's darker than it's never been darker than right now. And in that moment, you see the first ray of sun, hmm. and and then all of a sudden, and it is, it is, it is a spiritual moment. You see the hmm. the birth of a new day, right? Hmm. And it is it is a it is a sight to behold, to witness it from a perch that you can see off as far in the horizon as you can possibly imagine. Yeah. And to see the first glimmer of light. Yeah. And what that feels like. And so as the sun comes up, there is, there's this almost, it, you, everybody broke out into a celebration, right? Just like victory, right? And in the midst of that, Katuk comes over and says, excuse me, um, maybe if you were going to pay Bella some money, you could do that now. She has to go to school. I was like, I'm sorry, what? I thought today was Saturday. He goes, uh, no, it's Wednesday. Huh. And I was like, oh, my word. I've been here a long time. <laughs> and we said, of course. So we gave her all of our money, and she waved goodbye, and her and the other kids kind of fell in line and went off the edge of the volcano and disappeared. And that was it. Never saw her again. And so... I'm going, what do you mean she goes to school? And Katuk says, yes, you know, the kids here, they don't have very much money. They don't have public school. If they want to go to school, they have to make money. This is how they make money. So I was like, so they do this, like, obviously, like three or five days a week, yeah, they do this. And I thought, what? Hmm. And I'm thinking, my daughter at home, I don't let her walk to school, and we live three blocks away from school. Right, right. And this little girl is getting up in the middle of the night to go walk with with strangers from around the world on the hopes that they're going to give her something. Hmm. That moment altered the course of not just my life, but our organization. Yeah. As we left Bali, we were in Japan on our way home. And I told Mason, I said, I'm never going to forget Bella. Hmm. I never want to forget how I feel right now because I don't like it and I want to do something. And that next year, um, I came back, told Maddie what happened and said, Maddie, we want to do something. So Mason partnered with, with the NBA and Maddie, and they worked it out, and, and we put on a series of basketball camps in South Africa. Maddie had a connection there. And so my family and I and Mason and his family went with Maddie, and we spent two weeks in South Africa. And while we were there, we visited the Hananani Primary School on a Saturday. This time it was a Saturday. <laughs> And when we're there in the summer, it's their winter, right? They're on the other Mm -hmm. south side of the parallel. And um, so we go, when we're there, on a Saturday, it's winter, beautiful day, and the principal, her name is Concilia. And Concilia comes out, and all of the kids, all of the children on a Saturday, come dressed in these maroon and gold shiny outfits, and they sing and they dance for us as we visit this very 
poor, humble school in this very, very humble, rural, South African bush community. And as I'm talking to Concilia, she speaks beautiful English. And she's like, I can just tell, she's like the meekest human being I've ever met. And thinks nothing of herself. And as I'm listening to her, I just was overcome with something. I'm like, I want to do something. And I was like, I'm going to come back and I'm going to build you a new school. And she goes, okay. And I thought, well, that's kind of an interesting response, you know. And so that moment started what has become our international efforts within our foundation. Hmm. Concilia didn't accept, I learned later, what I was saying because, as it turns out, countless people had made that same trip. Hmm. And that same number of people had said, I'm going to do something. Make the same promise or similar. No. She said, you're the first one that ever came back. Wow. My goodness. Can you imagine? Having nothing. And hearing, you know of the wealth of the Western world. And you can imagine it. And then somebody says to you for the first time, I'm going to do something. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you some way. And you go, here it is. Yeah. And then they don't come through. Mm. And then the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one, to the point where you don't want to get up anymore to meet these people because they just want to feel good about saying that they're going to do something. Right. And so we went. And so I came back. So that was in 2017. I came back in 2018 to survey the site and develop a plan. And in March of 2019, uh, I brought um, a team of four people and we hired a local labor force and we excavated the <coughs> for the foundations and poured the foundations over the course of three days. And then um, that summer of 2019, we mobilized a group of 50 people from America along with 50 local workers and over the course of 10 days built a new campus. Hmm. And we, uh, with my good friend Alex Yale of YBA Architects, um, came up with a concept where we would ship a building in a container, but the building, was the container was the building. Yeah. Right? But the roof trusses, the interior finishes, everything... Desks, PPS, Portland Public Schools donated their old desks. You know, the outpouring of effort was incredible. Over the course of 10 days, hundreds of people come. We had one family. It became a, like, a legend of what was happening while we were doing it. Yeah, that. And we had people from these game lodges that would come out to volunteer from all over the world. And this one family came. And I called them the Von Trapp family singers. They were a Spanish family that had come on holiday, had heard through the rumblings and whisperings at a different lodge altogether. Because hmm. we had all of our lodges taken over. They were at a completely different branded lodge. Yeah. But they had heard about what was going on. And they said, can we come and see? And so they come and they, and they said...
we're musicians. We're not builders. We can't do that. But what we can offer you is a moment, a break, a song. Can we play for you? And we shut the job down. And they stood in the center of the campus. And, you know, 150 workers from <laughs> around the world stood around and watched as they sang to us in Spanish that nobody could understand. <laughs> and it was like the most beautiful thing. Oh, I bet. <laughs> Every morning, the workers, we would race to get to the job site. And it was, it was like an hour and 20 minute drive on the worst roads you can comprehend. <laughs> And, but we would race to get there because we wanted to see the workers start every morning. They started in song and ended that song in prayer before they started the day. And so when we had the grand opening celebration after 10 days, the Induna, the chief of the village, came. It was a, it was a huge event. The entire community was there. I mean, That's all. I don't even know how many hundreds of people were there. I mean, it was just... And Concilia, the principal, she got up to speak. And she said, All my life has been working towards making education here in my communities better. Hmm. And I wanted to believe that we could do more than we've done. But I had lost all hope. Mm. All hope. Mm. And then this team came. <laughs> and it was a miracle. They changed us. They changed our community. And I remember hearing her words and thinking, now I grew up as a Sunday school kid, and I think of miracles think of the parting of the Red Sea and raising Lazarus from the dead not putting a couple shipping containers together and building a school in 10 days and those words haunted me because I feel unworthy I don't like using the word miracle even to describe you know mayonnaise um, and I remember on the flight home thinking about it and going you know what I really felt like the Lord laid on my heart what we were, what we did was nothing miraculous. What we were was the backside of her miracle. Hmm. She saw the TV screen. She saw the movie. All the cuts and edits. All she could see was that. What was impossible now made possible. What we did was all very human. <laughs> right? There's nothing miraculous about what we did. That perspective then emboldened us to say, that's how we want our organization to look. Hmm. We want to commit ourselves to being the backside of miracles for other organizations. We want our profit to have a purpose. We want our efforts and our people and our culture to be about what we can do with what we get. And so the idea of growth and gain is not relegated to how much we can line our pockets with. That's great. But how much can we do 
with what we've been given. And the if we're blessed and do more, that means we can give more. Mm-hmm. It has become part of our cultural fabric, our giving effort, our foundation, the Anderson Foundation, as much as we talk about our profit and loss for the year, new projects, at every company event, we discuss, we give just as much time to our foundation as we do to any other business unit and any other segment of discussion. We bring our employees, they can apply and come with us on these international trips. We just finished a school in Oaxaca in October, Hmm. Mexico. I'm leaving for South Africa in April for the next phase of a new project. And so we'll be in South Africa twice this year, back in Oaxaca again for another element of their project. And then in October, we'll be in Aurangabad, India, building a community building. Additionally, we'll be building, we do countless projects right here at home for our communities. So it is an international work, but it is in part because it's easier to do work internationally, quite frankly, in construction than it is to do it, (laughs) than it is to do it and get things done here. Mm -hmm. Um, Organizations, people have often said to me, man, I wish I had a company that size. I would do those kind of things. And I tell them without fail, I did not have a company this size. We said this is what we're going to do, and then we grew a company to do it. Yeah. We didn't think that when we get there, you know, kind of going back to when we first started our conversation, people's understanding, the more you make, the more you spend. If it's not a priority to you today, it won't be a priority to you in the future. No, that's so right. good. Yeah, you got to be faithful with the little that you're entrusted with, and then you'll be entrusted with more. And so if people want to make a change, if they want to see their organization's culture shift, if they want to have purpose, you decide to have purpose today. You don't decide it when you think you have an abundance. You decide it when you're cutting something else. You're going to sacrifice something because this is more valuable than that. And until that's the ideology that you live by and your organization lives by, it will always be an afterthought because you will always consume more. Your wage will just absorb into a bigger life. And so unless it becomes foundational to your life, and but that same thing works. If you make that commitment small, as you do grow, that becomes a bigger and bigger and bigger portion of what you do mm-hmm. and who you are. And in this day and age, never has it been more prevalent, the need for purpose. What are we doing? Why am I doing it? We want to know these things. 100%. And if organizations can be a continual outlet for purpose, some people can find it at a church or in religion. Some people can find it in a family or have their own special areas. But for the vast majority, if your place of employment is an auxiliary benefit of purpose, then your everyday action can be purpose-filled. I am working today not just to make my company money, but because the money that we make is going to help improve the lives of everybody in this community, the communities that we all represent, and beyond in the world. If that is what we're doing, we are a for-profit with a purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
that's the effort. That's <laughs> so good, man. I just, uh, I love it. I, I love um, the way that the whole uh, conversation here started um, with th- that very quote of uh, profit with a purpose. But it's it's so easy to say, but here you are living it, doing it, executing on it. And um, gosh, that's the, the heart that we have uh, for ourselves as well as uh, for the, the community that we're building with the listeners here at Abundant Journey is that, that we want that. We want to be able to, as Nick has said so many times, like uh, we, we want to, to make more, to create more so that we can give more. Um, and uh, so I, I'm just so grateful for everything that yeah. that you're doing that anderson is doing and uh, and just pray that the lord would continue to to bless your work in ways that you know far exceed what you could ever hope or imagine it sounds like that's <laughs> been the ride joe, joe we've um <clears throat> as we wrap this thing up i mean you've covered most of the questions we would ask you one uh one more would would be at the end of your life what do you hope you're remembered for and i just we we've gone to all the other deep places so curious if uh if you got an answer for that someday i want to show up at heaven's gate in tattered rags hmm. that i gave it all that there was nothing left in the tank that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't think of a better way to go, right? <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's, that's awesome. Good. Well, man, I'm super grateful for uh, the conversation here. I think that that's a, an awesome place to, yep. to end it. And so thanks so much for your time. And, um, yeah, I mean, if uh, there's a lot that you got going on, a lot that you're doing. But if uh, if people do want to learn more about Anderson or learn about um, the the foundation or some of the different things, where would you send people to just if they want to get involved or partner or give? Yeah, um, yeah, you can learn more about us at um, at uh, www a n d e r s e n hyphen c o n s t dot com. That's Anderson with an e dash const for construction dot com. And on there, you can find a link to all of the things that we do um, in terms of how we build and the enterprise there. And you can also link to our foundation and how you can get involved how you can give, how you can learn. We've got great videos. We've tried to make a point to make documentaries of all of the and hire local film uh, filmmakers to make you know, short you know, 10, 15, 20-minute uh, videos to see what the impact of these communities' lives are like as a result of this and our own employees. Um, and so that uh, is a great way for people to, you know, to, get, um, to get a glimpse inside. And then, I mean, shoot. Like I'm like a Teddy Ruxpin doll. You just pull the cord, I can go. So um, I love talking with people, and so um, I'm happy to I'm happy to engage. I mean, what I want to see is a better world, and so yeah, here, you here. can't do it from behind, you know, without access. So I recognize the value of access, and um, and I appreciate it when I was young, the the people that that were willing to grant me access, and again, going back to the golden rule. Yep. It's only turnabout is fair play. It's my turn. So yeah. when somebody somebody wants to meet or talk, I'm I'm happy to do that. 
It's yeah. awesome. That's incredible. We uh, we so appreciate benefiting from that mm-hmm. uh, spirit of yours here in this conversation and grateful to everybody else who's able to listen along and benefit from the wisdom and things that you've been able to share with us. People matter and definitely feel that uh, from you and in the, the time that we get to spend together here. So thanks so much. See Thank you. you. See you next time.